Welcome to the Cannabis Cultivation and Science Podcast. I'm your host, Tad Hussey of Kiss Organics. This is the podcast where we discuss the cutting edge of organic growing from a science-based perspective and draw on top experts from around the industry to share their wisdom and knowledge. If you're enjoying these podcasts, please take a moment to subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher or whatever platform you're listening on and leave me a rating and review. This is really helpful and allows me to keep producing good content for free by drawing on more of the top names in the industry to the show. I'm excited to be back after the holidays for a fresh start in 2018. I've already lined up some amazing guests. Also, we've added a new commercial growers mix to our soil mix line and a bunch of other products to improve the health and growth of your plants. Be sure to go on our website and sign up for our newsletters as a way to stay up to date with everything that is going on, along with our new product launches, upcoming podcasts, and much more. Our guest this week is Jesse Bloom. Jesse is a Northwest native and comes from a strong background of horticulture and environmental sciences. She is passionate about animals, permaculture, and making functional gardens beautiful. She travels nationwide as a speaker and is the best-selling author of Free Range Chicken Gardens and Practical Permaculture Design. Jesse's work has gotten press and been featured in many national and local media outlets from the New York Times, Better Home and Gardens, Sunset Magazine, Disney, Martha Stewart Living, Mother Earth News, Utney Reader, Fine Gardening Magazine, and PBS's Growing a Greener World TV. I met Jesse quite a few years ago now, and we became good friends. She was instrumental in designing and planning our farm and is a big part of the community. Her book, Practical Permaculture Design, is a must-read in my opinion, if for no other reason than to get you thinking about how to best utilize and structure your farm or garden and get a better understanding of how permaculture might apply in your life. Jesse, can you go on a little bit into how you got into uh, gardening and garden design? And, and thanks for coming on the show. Well, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, I have a long history with working with the earth and with the plants. And I, I like to think it started when I was like really young and just loved being outdoors and making friends with all the organisms outside, like from insects to plants to all the mammals and animals. and I really loved the experience of just being outside and, and having relationships with everything. I didn't really trust humans at, that much as a youngster. So when I um, was starting to look at careers as I um, was a teenager, I wanted to work with animals and realized that animals suffer a lot of abuse and I couldn't quite stomach it. So I thought, well, I can learn about plants um, and make my career around plants because I uh, don't need to watch them suffer, which <laughs> I came to realize that's that was um not correct um once you start feeling into to plants you can start to see when they do suffer as i'm sure a lot of growers can see firsthand but i never really intended to become what i've ended up doing for my career i um now run a company that's 20 years in design build firm that does ecological work um for both residential commercial and some government work as well but it started with just a love for nature and wanting to learn more. And my design background just grew out of people asking me for help. And it started with me working in a kind of a residential um, land care setting and people asking, well, what can I do for this space that, you know, a plant may have died or something. And it just grew and grew to the point where I couldn't, quite handle it after about 10 years and I had to adjust my life to um, to make it what I needed 
And so the business is still thriving and it's been almost 20 years and I'm doing a lot of other things now too. I've written um, three books at this point and have been a teacher that travels around the country um, teaching for different media organizations like Mother Earth News and I'm doing a lot of writing for different magazines now and really enjoying that aspect of my career, but nothing beats being outside and working with the plants and getting my hands in the soil. Yeah, I remember uh, going to some of your first talks at Mother Earth News when you were doing your free-range chicken chicken gardens tour, and it, you've kind of evolved from there onto the, the permaculture and now your latest book. I guess I'm wondering, could you talk a little bit about how permaculture came into your life and how that sort of became incorporated into your design and, and what you do with your business? Yeah. So <clears throat> when I was in college in the 90s, the late 90s, I was entering an industry that I didn't really know much about. And in the world of horticulture, um, I expected to learn a lot about how nature functioned. And I learned like botany and soil science. And, and we really focused on a lot of the, the foundational um, academics of horticulture. But we were also learning about like pesticide use and the things that didn't align with me or resonate at all. And I, I was, you know, kind of an angsty young adult at that time and was kind of pissed off at what I saw in the industry as a norm. And I just understood nature to work beautifully on its own. And so I couldn't really understand, like, why are we forcing all these things to grow in a way that aren't natural? We're using all these chemicals that are harmful. Um, and then we're polluting our environment. And I, at that time, was um, not really looking for permaculture, but it landed in my lap through a book um, that was written by Bill Mollison um, called Introduction to Permaculture. And he's an Australian, one of the founders of the concept. And when I looked at the book, at first I was like, oh, this is totally common sense. It's like ecological design. We don't need to force nature. We just need to learn how to work with it in harmony to, to meet our own needs. And at that time in the 90s, nobody I knew was talking about permaculture. And if I had met someone at that time, there was kind of this... Um, air about them that I didn't, again, didn't resonate with. And I, I just kind of took my path with permaculture in my own way and really followed the ethics and the principles of um, taking care of the earth, taking care of ourselves and giving back, which that in itself is the foundation of permaculture is the ethics that um, it's, it's rooted in. And in the, like 10 years later, I want to say, so I ran my business with permaculture and my life to a degree. And in 2010, I was asked to design a garden for Seattle Tilth, which is a nonprofit um, organization that teaches people how to garden. And they wanted me to design a permaculture garden for the Northwest Flower and Garden Show. And I at first was just like, yes, of course, this is super easy. And this is like how I live my life. And I couldn't wait to share it with the world. And the show organizers actually said, well, we're not going to use that word in describing your garden because no one understands what it means. And so I was like, whatever, you know, it's a, it's a lost opportunity. But in that show, which the garden was um, really, really well received, it was called the little farm in the city and had all kinds of great systems set up. But 
a man named Dave Bainline walked up to me. Um, anyone who knows Dave, long dreadlocks, really jolly attitude, walked up and was like, hey, this is a great permaculture design. And I was like, whoa, somebody actually knows and appreciates what that means. And Dave and I developed a um, friendship. He's an educator over at the Bullock Homestead and has been for many years. And we started working together on projects. He works more internationally, and I'm I, my business is more local. So we started doing work together and ultimately decided to write a book together after the chicken book came out. And the permaculture book is now, um, I'm really proud of it. I think of my books kind of like my kids. The, um, it's written now in five languages and is used as an academic text in a lot of colleges that teach permaculture. Um, so I'm really proud of that book and kind of what it's done um, out in the world so far. But when I met Dave um, and I started going to the Bullock Homestead, and they've been doing permaculture for about 30 plus years now, I was amazed at how it was used in real life from a, um, not only the business standpoint, but how people were living off of the land. And I left the first time going to the Bullocks going, how can I make my life more like that? Not just my business, but really you know, not producing waste and um, growing as much food as I could on my own and medicine. So that was kind of a big turning point for me to see it more applied in multiple uses. And now I look at permaculture as a way of life that you can apply towards anything. You can apply it towards your finances. You can apply it towards relationships. Um, gardening, of course, is what most people begin to know it from or with. But really, you can use it for anything. Yeah, what I love about your book is that it really is that introduction. It sort of bridges the gap between you know, people like the Bullocks or people like Dave, who are amazing uh, permaculturists, but for the average person who lives in a house and maybe doesn't, uh, you know, pee on their plants or, or live in a yurt, <laughs> it's a little bit of a challenge to understand how to get from one space to the other. So that that's the best thing I, I think I can say about about your book is that it, it helps people as as an introduction into what permaculture can be. Uh, before we go any further, though, how would you really define permaculture for people who uh, aren't as familiar with it? So the kind of high-level definition, I would say, is it's a design system or toolkit for human habitat. Um, so if you think about how we design, like, insect habitat or butterfly habitat or any kind of habitat, um, we're looking at how ecological systems work together and you know we're just another organism on this planet one species out of millions and we have a huge impact in all the the environment around us so permaculture is a system or of tools resources to help us make decisions so that we can live more in harmony or ecological balance and i think of it like how we're supposed to live you know as stewards of the land and the land and the earth offer everything that we need, but we've got some, gotten so far removed from that, that the systems that we depend on now, like food systems or water systems, um, they're on, automated and they're out of our control for the most part. Um, so when I think of permaculture kind of at a high level, it's a, it's a design system. 
and to relate it to something maybe people are more familiar with, like engineering or architecture, those are also design systems um, where you could build all kinds of things, you know, from an airplane to a sky rise. Permaculture designs our habitat and all the systems that we rely on. Um, but unlike some other design systems, permaculture is rooted in ethics. And I always say, like, if you take nothing else away from um, permaculture as an introductory, understand that the ethics are probably the most important thing. And there's several of them, but the three most important or foundation are taking care of the earth. And so when we make decisions, how are we making a decision that impacts the earth? And every single thing we do in life impacts our environment. So whether it's what are we eating? What are we fertilizing our plants with? How are we spending our money? How does that impact the earth? And then the second ethic of caring for people. Um, if people aren't taken care of or their needs aren't met, they're not going to be able to take care of the earth. And it starts with ourselves first and making sure that our own needs are met and then um, taking care of others around us. And that's one that doesn't get a lot of, like a lot of people don't talk about it with introductory to permaculture because people are usually focused on garden related things. Um, but I like to put a lot of emphasis on that because it's really important to take care of people as they are the ones impacting the earth. And then um, there's fair share. That's another ethic that is kind of the altruistic um, element or layer where we, when we have an abundance of something, we need, we should share and give back. And then it comes full circle to whether it's taking care of people or taking care of the earth. If you have an abundance of a uh, crop or um, time or knowledge, um, like this podcast that you do could be considered giving back. You're sharing your knowledge and other people's knowledge with your listeners. So there's a lot of ways we can do it or look at that, but, um, that's where I always start with permaculture because some people could think of it as like just an organic gardening method, but that's really just one small, well, not small necessarily, but it's one piece of it that we look at, whereas everything we do in life um, is impacted by our decisions. And if we start with the ethics first, then we can start living in more harmony with the environment we're in. I think that's really important that we look at it beyond just a gardening system design. How would you say that people could use it outside of gardening um, as an example? Like I know you had mentioned um, engineering and architecture, but uh, how would a company or, or someone in their life incorporate permaculture, even if they weren't a gardener at all? Well, there's a lot of ways. Um, it's kind of endless as far as like the the ways that we can apply it, but it's, it's a design system. So we usually, when we're designing something, we usually have a problem or a goal that we're trying to achieve. So with a business, for example, we could look at a first analyze what we're, what we're doing and what we want to change. So say we have a goal of zero waste, which is one of the permaculture principles because um, nature doesn't produce waste, right? So how can we live or run our businesses in a way that we're not producing a lot of garbage. Um, and we would analyze first, well, how much garbage are we producing? Um, what ways can we start to eliminate garbage? And this was a lesson like going to the Bullocks. I learned like in the first three day visit I had with them, I produced zero waste. And even from my body, 
the waste that I produce went back to the ecosystem. In businesses, it's a little bit more difficult because we use like shipping um, plastics and we use things that maybe aren't biodegradable that we can compost. And so one of the first steps we can do is look at, okay, well, what kind of packaging or what are we using that we could change to be something that is biodegradable or can be put back into the earth. And there's, because we're like talking about a a fictional business, it's hard to give examples or specifics, but that's just one way to start the process. So um, if we're talking about growing, for example, and I I know we'll get more into this, but um, we're going to want to look at like what kind of inputs or resources we're bringing into the systems. So say we need a lot of fertilizers to grow our crop. Where are those fertilizers coming from? How can we start to look at producing our own fertilizers potentially, or having um, something that produces nutrients and minerals naturally so that we don't have to buy them? And really it's about creating sustainability or closed loops. So a truly sustainable system isn't going to require inputs from outside that system. When I think of landscaping or gardening, um, I think the the ultimate goal is that the landscape could take care of itself. It wouldn't really require a lot from us, whether it's um, irrigation long-term or constant fertilization. We should have the ecosystem working the way that nature works naturally because you walk out into the forest and there's nobody irrigating the forest. Um, it happens naturally. The plants are adapted to the climate, right? There's not people out there weeding and forcing the plants to do what they want. But that's a, a human element that we have to start considering when we are creating our own habitat or we're creating a product or um, a system that is unnatural by ecological standards. Okay, so let's dive in a little bit to the gardening aspect of it. So when you step onto a new site or a new property, what are the first things that you look at in terms of evaluating it and starting that process? Um, so there's, there's layers, the ecological layers I start with. So um, the first thing is the solar budget. So how much sun is the land getting naturally? How much shade is where? So that changes throughout the year. So that's number one. And you can do that pretty easily, even through like image images from satellite, like Google Image or Google Earth. So that's actually something I do before I even get to the property is I look at the land through satellites. I do research with topo maps, with soil maps, depending on how large the property is. Um, sometimes you just have to be on the ground to, to figure that stuff out. But when I am on the land, um, I can start looking at other layers that you can't see necessarily through the computer, like soil, um, specifics with soil, water. Water is huge. Depending on what climate we're in, we either have way too much or not enough. Um, Oftentimes, we have to find that balance of how do we capture the water on site and use it in a way that um, we're really taking care of that water supply. And the other layers may be um, insects or other organisms that we're needing for habitat. We could be looking at fungal presence. We could be looking at the existing plants and kind of what shape they're in. And all of that is really reading the landscape. But one of the bigger aspects of my job is making sure that 
the human or whoever's wanting to use the land, their goals are realistic with what the land can offer. And um, that's, that's where my job becomes a little bit more difficult because I can look at any landscape and go, okay, well, this is what the land can, landscape can support. But if someone has an idea of, you know, they're going to have a high production, you know, vegetable farm, for example, but yet they bought a piece of land that has a pretty intact forest, it's like, well, there's a conflict there. So um, we have to kind of step back and talk about the human expectations, the needs of the human, and how the land landscape can support that in a way that remains ecological rather than, you know, clear cutting and then growing everything. We're, we're removing a, a big part of the the ecosystem when we're doing that. So um, my job is, every job is different when I go out to a site. Every every client is different. And usually a lot of people, when they are looking at permaculture, they want kind of a plug-and-play prescriptive response of like, all right, well, what can I plant here? Um, what's the what's the five plants that are going to do the best? And it's like, well, I could list off 50 plants, but which ones are you going to use and take care of um, and really know how to nurture so that they can feed you? So there's a lot to look at, and it's a pretty, I guess, complex way of designing. But ultimately, we want to make sure that the ecosystem is sound and sustainable um, once it's established and that the human is happy, because how often do you see a landscape that's not taken care of um, and people then consider it a burden? Or they start to use chemicals or something that then isn't taking care of the ecosystem. I know that most of uh, permaculture is focused around growing food and vegetables. How would you incorporate permaculture concepts into cannabis cultivation? Well, it depends on the intention of the people growing the cannabis. So if it's, I would look at it differently if it was commercial, like if people were trying to make money off of it, that's one one way of designing. And then if people are just growing it for their own personal use. And I would treat those two clients completely different. Because if we're looking at making money, we have to have our systems dialed in a lot more. And we have to really maximize space in a way that the room for error is less. But we always got to start somewhere. And depending on that person's experience, they may come to the table with a lot of knowledge with how to do it um, synthetically. But with permaculture, we really want to shift everything to organic. I mean, that would be the the best way. And from my personal perspective or opinion is, you know, not to use chemicals to grow medicine. So soil fertility is a big aspect of that. You know, a plant that intakes a lot of nutrients and minerals, we have to really figure out where those replacement minerals and nutrients are going to come from um, and to do that sustainably and using products that aren't imported from, you know, halfway across the world. Another thing to look at with cannabis or any crop really is water use. Um, That's a huge aspect of making sure that our water needs are taken care of and we're not wasteful with water. But if we can capture it from the sky, that's truly sustainable. Um, There's a lot to consider with design though in that um, in that system alone, um, energy use. So again, with cannabis, there's this spectrum of growers, right? We've got people who are doing it inside, people who are doing it outside. And if we're doing it inside, then we're using a lot of electricity. 
some of the growers that I've visited, that's one of their biggest expenses. So how can we start to look at different ways of producing energy um, or getting off grid? Like is solar an option? Can we do things to raise temperatures or to, to have light be something that we can adjust a little bit easier? There's, there's all kinds of things to look at, but if we're growing outside, of course, we're going to have less control of the environment, but that also has more opportunity to bring in insects, to create more ecosystem um, and habitat so that the plants can then be supported by other plants. The, one of the concepts we can use outdoors is companion planting. We can actually invite insects that are predators to the pests and use those as allies to the crop. So that's kind of another fun thing to play with, and it works really well in vegetable gardens. Um, I think of cannabis kind of like tomatoes. Like, they're not super easy to grow. They're a little finicky if they're not in the perfect conditions and you know there's pests there's there's issues that plants can have and so how can we look at nature as a resource to take care of those potential issues or prevent them from happening potentially in the first place so just to give some concrete examples of some of the things you talked about now for example if you were a if you're growing five plants for your own medical garden um, or your own or your own use you may be able to add a rain barrel off of your garden shed, for example, as a way to collect enough water for that garden. Or for uh, on our property, we have an 85-foot by 30-foot greenhouse that we added gutters to, so we're able to collect uh, a massive amount of water that comes off of those into giant IBC totes that we can then use to water the garden. So uh, water catchment is definitely something you can look at there. Mm-hmm. Um, you talked about... Uh, insects as another as another thing through pollinator plants. Uh, so you're you're looking at planting not just a monocrop of cannabis or whatever cash crop you're growing, but incorporating in other plants that may either offer the ability to uh, accumulate minerals and nutrients out of the soil, like like comfrey or borage, mm-hmm. but also things that are going to attract good beneficial insects. Do you have any? Uh, particular plants that you like as just general pollinator plants? Um, well, there's entire families of plants that are are known to attract specific predator insects. Anything um, like in the carrot family, so fennel is a good one, or, or carrots if you want to let them go to seed. But of course, there's a lot of like little details to think about if you're trying to grow these things to produce more than that. Yarrow is one of my favorite insect plants. There's really a bunch of them. And a lot of it may depend on climate or exposure. Like if, say you have rows of crops around the outside or the perimeter, maybe like along the fence, for example, you can have a pollinator mix. And there's seed companies that are now starting to make these. A lot of them are are really, um, they grow in abundance, like calendula, for example. You can just plant a few of them, and every year you're going to have more and more because they um, germinate so easily from their own seeds. But there's there's a lot of them. Maybe it's, you know, to, to target a very specific pest that someone's struggling with. But I look at the more diversity the better because the more insects you have, the less predator or pest populations you're going to have because when there's a, 
you know, just one type of pest and not a predator, there's going to be population growth. And so the more insects you can bring in to kind of stabilize that or, you know, eat those insects, take care of it, the better. And sometimes you don't know, like one year you might have a problem with one thing, um, the next year you might have a problem with another thing. So it's it's important to have as many plants as possible, in my own opinion. That's wh where I've seen the most success versus just one type. But there's lots of seed mixes. Um, some do better in some climates than others. So it's hard to give specifics, not knowing the land also. So I try to stay away from that. But I can say calendula, yarrow. Um, those are two of my favorites. Fennel attracts a lot. Um, but there's there's a ton. Basically anything that attracts insects is probably good. And a lot of them are, are flowers that are beautiful. So not only are you getting um, help with, with pests, but you're getting beauty at the same time. Yeah, and I do just want to caution listeners that when you do add a pollinator mix, which we've done in our greenhouse multiple years, uh, mm -hmm. you, you are creating uh, a little bit more work for yourself in that these plants also need to be maintained. So as they, they die, you may increase a, a presence of fungal spores or powdery mildew, though uh, not all mildews are, um, I guess, prevalent across all species of plants. So just because there's mildew, say, on your comfrey doesn't mean that it can transfer to your cannabis plant. But uh, the potential is there. And so what I find is depending on the pollinator mix that I've used in the past will really determine how much uh, extra labor I have in terms of maintaining not just that, but my actual crop that I'm growing. So it's just something to be aware of. And then some of these, like you mentioned, self-sow. And so you have to be ready for that and be aware that certain ones you may want to get before they seed. Uh, something like borage, for example, you'll have hundreds of borage plants popping up, but they're super easy to pick out of the ground. Uh, so it's not a huge big deal, but uh, something to be aware of when you're companion planting. I like to run our stuff sometimes a little further away from our actual crop, but in the same area. Mm -hmm. So one of the things you worked with us on was uh, putting comfrey around our uh, vegetable, one of our vegetable beds that we do our you pick out of, and that allows us to uh, create a weed barrier for those weed seeds because those leaves are so large. I know at Bullock's Farm they've used different squashes as a way of doing that, mm -hmm. and then we can cut down a couple times a year that comfrey and apply it throughout our garden as a natural mulch that's going to provide more nutrients. It's going to keep down extra weeds. Um, it has a ton of benefits. Mm -hmm. It's one of the super plants. It has, a, it basically hits every ecological mark that you would want from a plant. Um, pollinator, medicinal, it's a great medicinal, it's a great root barrier, green manure, it's got a lot of calcium in its leaves, so it's got a lot of really great benefits. Yeah, yeah, though we're still fighting it where people transplant it into the middle of the garden, and that's been a real challenge um, yes. to remove, but uh, <laughs> we already talked about that on previous podcasts. So Great, so in terms of uh, <clears throat> permaculture and some of the science aspect, one of the listeners was asking about that. Can you talk a little bit about what sort of science may, may or may not support uh, these permaculture principles? Well, it's funny because I come from a scientific or academic background, and I got into permaculture because I, 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 I felt that it was common sense and um, saw results 
with it, but didn't need science to validate it for me. Science is expensive and um, not a lot of people in permaculture are necessarily doing a lot of science. There is some out there, but it's, it's one of those things that just like herbal medicine, people have been doing these things for a lot of years. In fact, a lot of permaculture principles come from um, indigenous cultures like that took care of the land long before the industrial revolution and when living locally was really the only way to do it. And there wasn't science back there, back that at that time telling people what to do. They just did what they had learned and observed over time. Um, and I, one of the examples I like to use and actually it, um, relates to you and how I met you when, when I was, it was maybe like what, 12 years ago now when compost tea was something that in the industry was kind of looked down upon because there wasn't enough peer-reviewed science. And I went to a conference actually where your dad spoke and learned about um, compost tea. And I was a little bit skeptical because of course I'm reading the trade magazines where it's like, Oh, there's not science behind this and it's snake oil, whatever. And um, my partner at the time wanted to experiment with it. And so we got a brewer and we got started and the results spoke for themselves. I didn't need science at that point. I was like, wow, why isn't everybody doing this? Um, it makes so much sense to me. And of course, there's a lot more out there now about that specific topic, but science hasn't always been around, but we've been around for a really long time. And the way that we've interacted with the landscape and with plants um, has been an, like a something that's been passed down orally. So the book that I just finished writing, um, one of my tasks was to look at plants and how they were used, you know, five, 6,000 years ago and how that, that knowledge was carried down over the years. But it's just now, like literally in the past hundred years, becoming validated by science. And it's like, do, do we really need it? Um, or can we learn for ourselves? And I, it's, a hard, it's a hard balance, especially in this world, because with something like nature, you can't reproduce uh, an ecosystem indoors or in a laboratory. Um, so it's hard. But one of the questions that comes up a lot that um, I can speak about, like dynamic accumulation, and I know this is something that um, people ask, well, where's the science behind? And it's, it's pretty soft science. There's not a lot out there because not a lot of people are looking into it. A lot of the science is going towards synthetics and it's going towards um, GMOs and it's going towards really altering um, plants, not necessarily investigating the ones that we could use easily. So dynamic accumulation, for anyone who doesn't know, the concept is pretty simple um, in that plants use their roots, they mine into the soil, they absorb nutrients and minerals, and then store them in their tissues, right? So we know this happens with plants because, you know, we eat plants and therefore we eat the minerals and nutrients, like bananas, you know have potassium, for example. One of the things that we just talked about, comfrey, is known for its ability to accumulate calcium, which is kind of an unusual thing. Um, and we're taught, you know, we're supposed to get calcium from milk. 
but we, it's there in that plant in a way that it's it's so concentrated that it's been used for 5,000 years as a healer of bones. So the science is, is there. It's just not necessarily wrapped in a permaculture package of like, here, here's what permaculture can offer you. It's, and it's, again, it's not prescriptive. So every single site and every single human and their needs are going to be different. And so there's not really a way to replicate that in a lab and look at it and, and try to figure out success because, you know, we could set up or design an amazing um, sustainable system for someone to be completely self-sufficient. And all it takes is a human error or maybe, you know, a fencing error for an entire crop to be wiped out. So, you know, we're not, we're kind of at the hands of nature to some degree, but also our own, our own experience. And if we, if we look at permaculture as only something, you know, that we'll accept if or if science is behind it, we've got a ways to wait because, um, you know, I don't know anybody who's putting their money towards that right now. They're experimenting with their land and they're trying to practice these things in real time. And when I was traveling to research for the permaculture book, that was one of my tasks, which was super fun. And I got to go all over the country and meet people who were practicing permaculture. And one of my questions was, you know, like, what failures have you seen? And everyone has experienced failures in gardening. Like, that's one of the things that we learn from. And it's different for every single person. And that may be just their expectations of what a success successful crop may be. But there's not a lot of hard science out there to support these concepts unless you look at it purely from an ecological standpoint. But human expectations are kind of what gets in the way of, you know, what is successful, um, what's working, what's not. Um, and again, there's a lot of error that can happen because of our choices so yeah you touched on a lot of things there that I want to kind of review so in terms of going all the way back to dynamic accumulators one thing I want to point out for people that I think is a challenge as well is if that comfrey for example is planted in soil that is low in calcium that leaf tissue is not going to magically accumulate high levels of calcium if it's not available in the soil so you see these I see these lists online all the time of various plants and then the amount of nutrients that they're supposedly going to be imparting, same with, or, or when they're used as fertilizers. And I think those lists can be really misleading for growers because you don't know that there's going to be 10% calcium in that leaf tissue just because just because you don't know the quality in which or, or the way in which that crop was grown. And you can see a huge variance. And any, and any farmer will tell you that their crops can vary quite a bit. Um, just based on the soil conditions that they're growing on. And then yeah. in terms of permaculture and the, the science aspect, uh, you mentioned how, how we met. I know when I first met you, I was very skeptical of the term permaculture because <laughs> basically everyone I had met up to that point before meeting you and Dave really came across really a little bit arrogant to me in terms of, oh, you're not doing permaculture. You don't know about permaculture. Um, and when you came out to our property and looked at our farm, you, you you kind of you shocked me. I don't know if you remember this, but you we started walking around and you're like, Tad, this is a permaculture concept right here. You're already doing some of these things. And for me, like the stuff that you were pointing out, like you said, was very it's some of what permaculture is is very common sense. And to me, that's one thing that separates it from 
people that are into uh, you know biodynamics, for example, or um, the energies associated around water, these things that have not been proven and there's not a lot of science behind. The thing about permaculture is a lot of these concepts are, are design concepts. They're common sense concepts. And ultimately, the the main purpose of them is really to take care of the earth and to um, take care of the, the property that we're, we're growing on. And for that to happen, I think it doesn't have to be as science focused, but that doesn't mean we can't apply science to it. Like you mentioned compost tea. Well, I know a lot of these permaculture people are using compost teas. Well, that doesn't mean they couldn't use the available body of knowledge that's already out there around that science and apply it towards the way that they're making the compost tea. So we can take aspects of science and apply it to aspects of permaculture. It's not that permaculture is necessarily anti-science. It's just that not everything that is happening is happening because of science. It's happening because of, like you mentioned, the ethics around these principles are number one. Yeah. And I think it's really important also to say that in order to practice permaculture, it's really helpful to have science as a foundation in understanding the ecological systems, like understanding soil science. That's critical in being able to manage soil fertility and to grow crops. And, you know, the the hydrology of a site, that's really important to look at as well. And there's, there's a lot of science that um, is important to know in just beginning. But I, I like people to just experiment and to try. And of course, it's different when you're trying to make money from systems. But in a home environment, there's definitely steps that you can take to just get started. And... Um, one thing that I experience a lot or see people have is uh, analysis paralysis where <clears throat> they won't move forward until they have all the answers they're seeking. And you can waste a lot of time and your own learning in trying to, you know, find someone else's answers. But it, it all starts with soil. It starts with the science. It starts with understanding those basic ecological systems. Yeah, you know, I hope people will look into permaculture. Hopefully this talk will encourage people to consider it. And I think your book is a great resource for people looking for an introduction. Let's take a commercial facility that's already growing, and it could be an indoor one or a greenhouse one. And my hope is that they will, rather than, like you mentioned, getting paralyzed by trying to get to zero waste, for example, which is a really, really tough goal, um, how about instead let's do let, let's source one amendment or one fertilizer source uh, closer to home, or let's try to reduce the amount of packaging that we're using, or let's do something to make it easier for our employees to uh, have a better work environment. So these are very basic things that any any facility could do that would help improve um, and, and incorporate you know the most basic of permaculture principles into their into their cultivation. Yeah, and one of the principles of permaculture is to start small. Um, we can't go from living in mainstream culture to completely sustainable overnight. It takes time, and it really takes looking at the systems that you can change easily um, for the biggest impact, and starting there instead of you know investing a lot in a big, huge change that you you don't have experience with. It's it's definitely good to just take baby steps. And on that, on the other side of that, if you haven't designed your property yet and you're starting from scratch, this is a great tool for beginning that process to get you thinking about um, 
all your resources on that property and how you want to design the property to best maximize workflow and uh, what is available um, based on where you're located. So I, I really encourage people. One thing I find, you know, having a farm and a garden center is that people will walk in and buy one apple tree and then they'll plant it and then they'll come back two weeks later and buy a walnut tree, for example. And then over the period of five years, you go to their property and they have all these things haphazardly scattered around the landscape. And they're like, this doesn't look like a landscape anymore. Whereas if they had invested, you know, a little more thought at the very beginning of the process, they could have really designed something that made a lot more sense, that they were happier with aesthetically. Uh, putting in that time, I think, early on in your, um, in your business or in your property is, is huge. Yeah, and that's really what permaculture is. It's, it's, it's the process of design, the steps you take to make those decisions, the things that you look at. And I, I, essentially that's my job is to help people do that. So, of course, I'm uh, biased but all in favor of people taking the time and the money. Even if it's you know a $300 consultation, that could save you $100,000 in mistakes. So it's, it's well worth the time in gaining, especially someone else's perspective who's been doing it a long time. Um, and that, another thing about that, like it, whether it's cannabis or another crop or home gardening, one of the best ways to learn is through someone who's already doing it in your bioregion. Um, because the climate's going to be similar, the goals are going to be similar, and just having conversations with people who are already doing it um, is a great way to learn and avoid certain mistakes uh, before beforehand. Yeah, I do a little bit of consulting um, here and there, and one of the things that people ask me is what cover crop should they be growing, for example, on their field through the winter, and I always say go go talk to your neighboring farmers. Find out what they've already learned that works really well you know, in your, in your environment or in your region. So there's a lot of resources out there. Getting to know your neighbors is, uh, is a big one for sure. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Um, well, was there anything else you wanted to cover regarding permaculture or do you want to talk a little bit more about what you're up to these days or? It's know? up to you, Tad. I'm, um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy to talk about whatever. I think just, just cause you mentioned cover crops. That's one more thing that can be added to outdoor cannabis growing is, you know, plants that add nitrogen back into the soil. And I, I'm not sure if you've talked about that on other podcasts or not, but um, looking at legumes um, and nitrogen fixers as ground covers even um, is something that I would, I would consider trying out. Yeah, well, let's, uh, we have talked a little bit about that, but let's give the listeners a little, uh, a little background into um, what you have going on and what your next book is about before we sign off for the, for the episode. Okay. Um, well, my next book, so I've written the chicken, free range chicken gardens, which is really about creating habitat for them in an ecological or permaculture way as they can be great allies to us. And then the practical permaculture book was, was really intended to be an introductory design manual. And my latest book is called Creating Sanctuary. And that book was, it took it to more of a personal level of, well, how can we create spaces for us to be rejuvenated, to have our needs met? And it kind of goes into the, that second ethic I talked about of caring for people and starting with ourselves. But 
looking at plants as allies and their sacred powers is what I think we ended up calling it in the book, both from a historical perspective, but also medicinal and energetic standpoint. So looking across the globe at how people have used plants throughout the ages um, as healers. And it was a really fun but challenging book to write. Um, I was really looking for those matches of, you know, the, the plants that had ancient uses and the science behind those being validated now. Um, so that was really fun. Um, it incorporates a lot of um, energetics and there's a chapter on creating sacred space for yourself. So it gets, it gets into the spiritual realm of you know, really taking care of yourself at a soul level and how plants can help you with that. So, yeah, I'm really excited about it. It'll come out this fall, um, and it's it's all wrapped up, but got to wait for design and printing. So I'm excited. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that one. I haven't uh, obviously haven't read it yet, but uh, really excited for you. And thanks again for taking the time to do this show today. Thanks for having me. That was Jessie Bloom, owner of N.W. Bloom and co-author of Practical Permaculture Design. Her books are available through our website if you want to support small business or major booksellers like Amazon.com. You are listening to the Cannabis Cultivation and Science Podcast. I'm your host, Tad Hussey. Don't forget that there's more information and articles available on our website and blog at www.kisorganics.com, as well as links to the data and information we discussed in this episode on the podcast page. And if you enjoy these podcasts, please take a moment to leave me a rating or review on iTunes and send me your feedback and suggestions through our website contact page or tad at kisorganics.com. That's T-A-D at kisorganics.com. Thanks for listening.